0: Be Christ's church, impact the valley, reach the world, all for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. If you have your copy of God's word, and I hope that you do, If you'd make your way to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 26. And we're going to consider, in Acts 26, what I'm calling Paul's closing argument. Paul's closing argument. He's been before the Roman authorities uh, for several chapters now. And uh, if you tried to join us last week by live stream, I I apologize. We experienced some technical difficulties and you missed chapter 25 uh, so, if you wanted to know what happened in chapter 25, you needed to be here on the premises, which is the way it was for 2,000 years, right? So, and it's the best place to be, right, is in the house of God with the people of God. It's a nice luxury. It's a good convenience for those who are homebound or sick or ailing, but don't make a habit out of live stream because you never know when it might just jump up and bite you, uh, the technology, and... And you just miss out on what God said last week, because I can't re-say it in exactly the same way I said it last week. And I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to preach all of 25 and 26. I'd have to keep you a really long time. Um, But, for the sake of context, a little bit of 25, All right. For those of you who are here, I'm sorry. For those of you who weren't, a little bit of context. In chapter 25, we saw Paul experiencing more of the same. False allegations that couldn't be proven, and a Roman official, this time not Governor Felix, but Governor Festus, feeling stuck as to how he's going to handle Paul's case without either condemning an innocent man to death or upsetting the Jewish opposition because he doesn't do anything with Paul and instead frees him. So he doesn't doesn't know what to do. And when Festus is like, hey, let's just take this case back to Jerusalem, Paul sees. That that's a, a step in the wrong direction. And so he appeals his case as a Roman citizen to Caesar in Rome. But before Festus can arrange for his transport, another Roman official shows up by the name of King Agrippa. He comes to town and he's fascinated by the details of Paul's case. And he's like, hey, I want to hear this case. And Festus is like, you know what? That's a great idea because if I'm going to send Paul to Caesar, I probably need a good reason to send him to Caesar, and I have none. So maybe you could help me come up with a good reason. We're going to put on a trial tomorrow, and it's not really a trial. It's more of a show. It's in the assembly hall, not in the hall of justice. And so that's where we are as we turn the page to chapter 26. The the stage is set for Paul to, in a sense, entertain these Gentile Roman elites. And Paul's going to give, essentially, his his closing argument in his own defense. But what we're going to find is that he really goes on the offense, That, that his best defense is the offensive of the gospel. He will present the gospel and serve as a witness to the truth of faith in a resurrected Jesus because... The gospel story has become Paul's story. He's become (laughs) wrapped up in the gospel, a beneficiary of the gospel, and he can't help but say, I belong to the resurrected king. No matter what you're going to do to me, Jesus is my hope, my stay, and my story. And we just sang that, did we not? In Christ alone, my hope is found. That's essentially what Paul will say in Acts 26. Would you pray with me, and then we'll hear the word of the Lord. God, we give you praise for the opportunity to be gathered as your people in the name of Jesus. There's, there's no other name by which men can be saved. There's, there's no other hope. In Christ alone, our hope is found, and it is a great hope. It's the only hope we need. And we, we profess this morning that we are satisfied with Christ. We, we confess, God, sometimes we fall short of that, that we get distracted or we neglect our, our hope and our confidence that is found in King Jesus. But God, we, we, we ask that even in the hearing of your word today that you would renew that in us as we see Paul on trial, in chains for the hope of the gospel and never backing down. God, give us that sort of, that sort of hope and that sort of resolve. Forgive us, we, we ask, for putting our hope and confidence in far lesser things. Forgive us for being distracted by things that are so temporary compared to the eternity that awaits those who hope in Christ. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 of chapter 26, continuing down through verse 12. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate. That it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion I have lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. Here's what I want you to see in verses 1 through 12. Paul has this last opportunity before a, a distinguished audience of, of officials. The hall is filled with, with the elites of his society in that day. He does two things that we can learn, or learn from. First, he shows respect. And second, he shares about his life before encountering Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, you have a life before Jesus right? To be converted, you've got to first recognize that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And Paul is going to talk about his life before Jesus. But first, he, he shows respect. In verses 1 through 3, he stretches out his hand toward the king, which is a, a gesture of respect to King Agrippa. And then he speaks in his own defense, addressing all the accusations, verse 2, of the Jews. Paul considers himself fortunate, he says, to make his defense before King Agrippa, Because Agrippa, although he's a Gentile, he could, as Peterson writes, on occasion represent himself as a Jew in spirit, and he had certain rights in the temple and in the appointment of the high priest. In other words, Agrippa is fascinated with Judaism. And and he knows that Agrippa is well acquainted with the customs and the controversies, verse 3, of the Jews. This means that Paul can argue his case deeply. He can argue theologically, comprehensively. He doesn't have to stay at a, a surface level. He can go into the weeds, as it were, with King Agrippa. And he's like, Praise God, I can, I can go all the way in my defense of Jesus. And while, while it may not seem like it at first, Paul wants the king to know that his argument really is going somewhere. Uh, I hope that's true for this sermon as well this morning. If you'd, I beg your patience. We, are re- we really are going somewhere. That's how Paul begins with King Agrippa. He's going to build a theological case to prove that he's innocent of any of the alleged theological crimes, and he's confident that King Agrippa, of all people, can hang with him. And I'm confident that you can hang with me. All right? So here we go. In this grand hall filled with a grand audience, Paul is about to bring his defense to a grand finale. And as he does, he focuses not on the whole crowd, but on one man. He's going to have this one conversation that everyone else can look into. Paul is hoping to introduce King Agrippa to the King of Kings. In what Scott Kellum calls the last and most detailed speech in the book of Acts by Paul. And after showing Agrippa the appropriate respect, he he gets to the case. And he he says in verses four and five, my life was an open book from the beginning, from the beginning of my youth, my manner of life. Verse four, it was known by all the Jews. He was not just a Jew in name only going through the motions. He was a Pharisee. He lived at the heart of of Judaism both geographically and theologically. Judaism is the geographic uh, Jerusalem is the geographical heart of Judaism, being a Pharisee is the theological heart at the time of Judaism. He he took the scriptures and his Jewish identity incredibly seriously. And here's his point, even his opposition if they're honest If they're willing to testify, as Paul puts it, they know full well how committed Paul was to the Jewish way of thinking. If they're honest, they know that the odds of Paul embracing something contrary to the Old Testament, the odds of Paul embracing something contrary to the Jewish heritage or their Jewish identity or the role of Israel in God's plan for the world were virtually zero. And yet, that's what they're saying about Paul. They are arguing that somehow Paul has thrown away his love for all things Jewish. And they know that that would be crazy. Now, of course, there's been a change, right? But the change is not in Paul's love for Israel. The change is in Paul's understanding of Israel and Israel's role in God's plan. He hasn't lost his passion for Jews or Jewish people or for their scriptures. So Paul in verse 6 begins with the words, and now, which is interesting because he doesn't say but now, but and now. So he's signaling that there's been a change, but it's a change that is not contrary to Judaism. It's not contrary to Israel, but it's consistent with a right understanding of Israel's role in the world. So Paul says, and now. Something has changed. But nothing has changed in God, rather something has changed in Paul. Something has changed in in Paul's understanding. Paul has not renounced his heritage, rather he has finally encountered and embraced its hero, the one who brings and gives Hope, verse 6, hope contained in the promise that God made to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul doesn't mention Jesus yet, but he's setting the table to give King Agrippa an incredible gospel meal. For now, he simply says this, the the hope that Paul has found. You see, verse 6, it's not just a hope, it's my hope. It's a hope that Paul possesses. It is the same hope that motivates our 12 tribes. Do you see that in verse 7? Now, that's interesting. Have you heard people say, well, where are the lost tribes of Israel? Paul's like, uh, they're not lost. They're Jews scattered throughout the world. The, the whole nation of Israel that worships night and day with earnestness, they, they, they are looking for what? The resurrection from the dead. He's not criticizing their earnestness, he's arguing that they are motivated by the same hope that's always motivated true Israelites, which is the resurrection of the dead. Peterson puts it this way, Paul takes great pains to establish the hope of Israel is fulfilled in Jesus' resurrection. Paul has not rejected his Jewish heritage, he's found Israel's hope. But I've, I've gotten ahead of Paul a little bit. For now, Paul simply wants his argument for, before King Agrippa to go like this. My hope is the Jewish hope, and that hope is the resurrection of the dead, and I'm being accused by Jews for having the exact same hope that they should have. What is this about, Agrippa? And then in verse 8, Paul asks a rhetorical question to suggest that the denial of the possibility of the resurrection of the dead by God is ridiculous. That these, these are the people who claim to serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, they buried their loved ones in anticipation of the resurrection. They claim to be, belong to the God who parted the Red Sea and brought Israel out of Egypt. The God who created the world from nothing. And now they want to reject the resurrection altogether simply so they can escape their accountability to Jesus. Come on now. Consider Jesus. And then in verse 9, Paul acknowledges that previously he'd been right where they were, right? Look at verses 9 through 11. Paul says he initially rejected the resurrected Messiah too. In verse 9, he tells us that he was convinced that he ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus. In other words, Paul believed when he was persecuting Christians before he encountered Christ that he was doing God's work by opposing God's Son. He challenged the name of Jesus. What does that mean? He challenged what was preached about him, and he attacked those who claimed to have life in his name. Paul's testimony is that he grew up as a model Jew, and he hated Jesus with a passion. I've encouraged us as a church in 2023 to pray for lost people, people who don't know Jesus in three categories. Do you remember those categories? Unspeakable, unknown, and unlikely, unspeakable because they're so close to us, and we, we're desperate for them to come to saving faith in Christ. It might be a, a brother or a sister or mom or a dad or a close relative, and, and there are those people in our lives that it's just it's hard to even speak about because they mean so much to us. They're so close to us. And then there are others who are unknown. We, they're, they're a colleague or a coworker, or a, somebody we see at Kroger when we're at you know, getting a click list every now and then. We, we just don't know where they are in their receptivity to the gospel. And then we're praying for those who are unlikely to receive the gospel. Can you conceive of anyone more unlikely to trust in Jesus than Paul? And that's the point that he's making, right? I hated Jesus. I hated Jesus' people. I was right where you are, and yet the most plausible explanation for Paul now living on mission to proclaim that he's found life in Jesus is what? That Jesus really exists, that Jesus really is alive, that Jesus really met him on the road to Damascus. Before Paul met Jesus, we see in verses 10 and 11 that his mission, he had a mission, right? His mission was to oppose the Great Commission, the gospel we're promised in Acts 1-8, is going to go from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. But what did Paul do? He locked up Christians in Jerusalem. He gave approval to murdering believers, seemingly more than just Stephen and James are implied by this. He tried and failed to make Christians blaspheme by denying Jesus. And he even pursued them outside of Jerusalem and Judea to foreign cities. Do you see it in verse 11? In a raging fury. Paul became an irrationally angry maniac on a mission to stamp out Christianity. And his mission of persecuting Christians in Damascus, as we're going to see in verse 12, was authorized and commissioned by the chief priests. The the leaders who are now opposing Paul were complicit in sending Paul out to kill Christians. He was on an anti-Great Commission mission. Thoroughly and passionately and rabidly opposed to Jesus and his people, and convinced he was doing God's work. But on the way to Damascus, things changed. On the way to Damascus, he met the risen king, and meeting the risen king changes everything. It changes your life, it changes your eternal destiny, and it changes your life's purpose. But for people to understand the difference that Jesus makes in our lives, we first whenever we have the opportunity like Paul does here, we need to show proper respect and then we need to be bold enough to tell our before Jesus story. What's your before Jesus story? Is it drugs? Is it lust? Is it pride? Is it self-righteousness? Is it career attainment and achievement? Is it is it money? Is it cars? Is it fame? Is it hobbies? What is it that you were trusting in before Jesus so graciously interrupted your life? Own that part of your testimony. It is, it is only the background to highlight how great Jesus is. And Paul's going to tell us how great Jesus is. Let's, let's keep reading. Verse 13. At midday, O king... I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant. And witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now that's a lot. I'm going to summarize it in one long sentence. You ready? For the note takers, we'll we'll hold the, the sentence up there a bit longer than usual. This is what we see Paul doing in 13 through 23. And it's what we should all be about. Paul tells the story of how Jesus interrupted his life and made him a part of his mission. What is his mission? To proclaim the good news of how people, Jew and Gentile, that's everybody, (laughs) Jew and Gentile can be forgiven and everybody needs to be forgiven, by the way. There's no one who hasn't Rebelled against God, sinned against God, disrespected God. Everybody needs to be forgiven. There's no other way to be right with God and to be accepted in His presence and to have joy there. To tell the good news of how people can be forgiven and set apart. That's the word sanctified that we saw later in in the text here. Set apart, in, in verse 18. Set apart for God through faith in Jesus. And who is Jesus? There's a lot of Jesuses at the time of Jesus. Did you know that? So so every Easter, the History Channel comes on and they're like, we found the tomb of Jesus. Here's his bones right here. Oh, come on. You know how many Jesuses there were? There's a lot of Jesuses at the time of Jesus. But there is a particular Jesus in whom we must trust. It is the Christ of the Old Testament, the Messiah, the anointed and appointed King promised by God from Genesis 3.15 forward. This Jesus has come, he has lived a perfect life, he's died an atoning death, and he has been raised on the third day to proclaim hope and life and light and the gospel and good news to the ends of the earth until he comes again. It's that Jesus who saves. And that's a story that's not just for Paul to tell. It's a story that's been entrusted for the church to tell until he Comes again. In verses 13 through 15, Paul describes when Jesus appeared to him on his way to Damascus and he addresses the king again directly. Verse 13, O king. Verse 19, O king Agrippa. In verse 14, we learn Jesus asked Paul if it was hard to kick against the goads. I'm like, what in the world does that mean? Goads were were pointed sticks intended to drive livestock in the right direction. According to A.T. Robertson, kicking against the goads was a, a common Greek proverb referring to an animal that would cause a worse wound by fighting the direction that it should go. In this case, Paul is fighting the truth about Jesus. He's even persecuting Jesus by persecuting the church, we're told in verse 15. He's like a stubborn animal with the will of God for his life, but God was going to win. Jesus was going to break him down. Let me ask you a question. How has Jesus interrupted your life, your plan, and your mission? Have you been redirected by God? Has God intercepted you and put you on the path of his mission? That's, That's Paul's testimony. In verse 16, Jesus gives Paul a new mission, and the mission is the mission of Jesus. Paul will serve God as a witness to what he's seen of Jesus and to the things that Jesus had yet to show him. So Paul, though he's not one of the 12 apostles, is like an apostle in that he did see and hear the risen Jesus and was authorized to receive and transmit God's revelation. We see that right here in this text. Jesus' command in verse 16 reminds us of his commission to the prophet Ezekiel, the exact same language. He says, rise and stand up on your feet. The the Lord's command to to Paul is to to function in a prophetic way, proclaiming and announcing that the Messiah who had been promised has now come in fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. But living in this mission for Jesus would not be easy. Do you see verse 17? Verse 17. Jesus promises that he will deliver Paul from the very people that he's sending Paul to reach. Paul, you're going to go to your people, Jews and to Gentiles, and I'll deliver you from both of them. Paul has to have this promise in mind as he stands before Agrippa. Here's Paul in chains before Agrippa, and here's his point. Look, you think I'm a prisoner. You think I'm in chains and that you've got me, that you've robbed me of my authority, that you've robbed me of my mission, that you've robbed me of the power of God in my testimony. You haven't done anything that Jesus didn't say wasn't going to happen. Jesus knows I'm in chains, and he knows he's going to deliver me from you somehow. So don't think that these chains undercut the truthfulness of the message of the gospel. And in verse 18, we learn that Jesus sends Paul out in his mission to work through Paul. Why? Do you look at, I love verse 18, to open their eyes. We, we think about the Gospels and, and Jesus opening physically blind eyes, which is a, a picture, it's a metaphor for what Jesus has to do to our hearts to open their eyes so that they can turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are set apart, are once and for all set apart, sanctified. How? By faith in me. Jesus, have you ever thought about this? Jesus could have sent an angel to write the gospel message in the sky. He could have sent, even though we didn't have the technology at the time, He's God, so He could have done it. He could have sent a telegraph. He could have sent us all an email and signed it Yahweh. There's so many ways that God could have published the gospel. Signs and wonders and miracles. But how did God choose to publish the gospel? He chose to publish the gospel through people who've been rescued by Jesus and indwelled by His Spirit so that spirit-indwelled people could help other people know how they could be rescued by Jesus and have a relationship with him. Let me ask you, what are you really going to believe? Are you going to believe an angel that appears in the sky one time, you're like, woo, and then it's gone? Or are you going to believe somebody who consistently loves his wife and serves his family and is honorable in his workplace over a lifetime, despite all the adversity that life brings, and they keep living for Jesus day in and day out? You're going to believe that guy. And here's Paul, looking a lot like Jesus, on trial, in chains for his fidelity to Jesus Christ and to God the Father, and he is publishing the gospel there in the hall at Caesarea. Paul is portrayed in this text as an extension of Jesus himself. In Isaiah 42 6 and 7, the prophet says of the coming Messiah, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison to those who sit in darkness. In Isaiah 9-2, the prophet declares a day is coming when those walking in darkness will see a great light. This happens not only because of Jesus, but because of those who belong to Jesus and have encountered His light. Paul, you remember how Paul comes to Christ? He's temporarily blinded by the glorious light of Jesus so that he can know what darkness is and then the rest of his life be committed to giving himself to being an instrument that God will use to open eyes. You cannot come to Christ unless your eyes are first opened. King Jesus is proclaiming the gospel through his church to this very day. He is opening eyes to the reality that apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins to repent, to turn to God. We must first see that we are in spiritual darkness, living under Satan's power. Only then can we turn from what we now know we need to turn from. Only then can we repent and believe the gospel and run to Jesus in Do you see that at the end of verse 18? It says they are sanctified, permanently, ongoingly set apart as God's people. How? Through faith in me, not not me, In, in Jesus. There's no other way, church. There's no other way to be right with God. It's not faith in faith, It's not faith in a feeling. It's not faith in your favorite song. It's not faith in an experience. It is faith in the living Lord Jesus Christ that sets us apart as His people. Beloved, this is our mission. Why are we here? Acts 26. We proclaim the gospel and we watch our King work through our witness. So so what does Paul do when he gets this commission? Verse 19 he was not disobedient. This is Paul's kind of backhanded way, understated way of saying, I was obedient. Like, you don't want to call yourself obedient, right? Hey, look at me, I was, the, I was super obedient, yay. But I was not disobedient, which is his, his way of saying, I was all in. I didn't just do what Jesus told me to do, I did it with all my heart and with all that I am and with all that I have. We know this because what does Paul do? He begins calling on people to repent, to turn to God in faith, and to live out their new life in Christ, verse 20, to perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. This is fascinating. Look at the order in verse 20. He doesn't say that he called on them to get their life together and hope that Jesus would save them. This is important. All you got to do is run to Jesus All you got to do is see that you've been living in darkness, see that you've been living in a life of rebellion for God, see that Jesus is the light, turn to Him, trust in Him, and He will take care of giving you the Holy Spirit to enable you to live out the life that He's working into you. But if you spend the rest of your life trying to be good enough to get to God, you'll never get there. you got to get the order right. Believing in Jesus really will change how you live. And if it doesn't, that's a problem, that's a warning sign. If you can keep living in the sin you were living in before you were supposedly saved, you were never saved. If if you're just doing the same stuff and you just attached a little Jesus to your life and there was no substantive change in your thoughts and your attitudes, your behaviors, your actions, I'm not saying that you were perfect, but that when you were less than perfect, that it bothers you now and you want to run back to Jesus. If sin is still just as enjoyable as it ever was, big warning light on the dash of your spiritual life. Paul, what does he do? He obeys the mission. He obeys the gospel. He does it in Damascus because that's where he is. And then when he gets to Jerusalem, he does it in Jerusalem. And then he does it in Judea and among the Gentiles of all the nations. Do you see those words, Jerusalem and Judea and the Gentiles of the nations? Does that sound like an echo of Acts 1.8? Do you remember what Acts 1-8 says? You're going to get this Holy Spirit, and he's going to give you power to take the gospel. Where? To Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Paul is like a a one-man Acts 1-8 wrecking crew. Through Paul, the most unlikely of converts, the guy who hated Jesus, who was opposing the Great Commission, now the Great Commission is being fulfilled, and the gospel is on the run to the ends of the earth. Did you know God can do that with your life? be stuck in a loop of whatever that is unfulfilling, that will not deliver, that will not give eternal hope and eternal life in in today, that God could open your eyes. I pray that today God would open somebody's eyes and that you would turn from a life that ends in misery and turn to a God who gives hope and the power to live for Him. It happened for Paul, it can happen for anyone in this room. And because of this, because Paul encountered and is now obeying Jesus, Israel's king, the Jews, what do they do, verse 21? They seize him and they try to kill him, but they're fighting a losing battle. King Jesus has helped Paul so far, just as he promised, and he's going to help him now. So there in this grand hall, Paul announces the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament anticipates, the Messiah, who was going to come and suffer death for sinners and rise on the third day and proclaim the message of light to Jews and all nations, he's here. He was there in that hall and he's here in this gymnasium. And he speaks through Paul and I hope he speaks to this preacher and he speaks through you as you leave this room today that all who will submit to the king that was promised in the Jewish scriptures may be saved. There's nothing more inherently and faithfully Jewish for Paul than to announce salvation through Israel's crucified, risen, and sin-forgiving king. When Paul met King Jesus, he got a new mission. He, obey whole, he obeyed wholeheartedly and he never looked back. Paul's mission is our mission. It is the mission of anyone whose life has been gloriously and graciously and impossibly upended by King Jesus. But the response of our hearers is out of our hands. Let's keep reading to the end of the chapter, verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. That's not a compliment if you were confused about that. You're crazy, Paul. Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me in this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Last point. Church, we should, as we go, we should expect rejection and ridicule. And yet, we should take opportunities to urge people to surrender to King Jesus and leave the results to him. The results aren't up to us, they're up to God. Before Paul met Jesus, he says in verse 11, did you see it back in verse 11? Paul says in verse 11, I was crazy. I was in a raging fury. I was out of my my mind as I was persecuting Christians. And now Festus thinks that Paul's out of his mind because of Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it? The world thinks the Jesus people are the crazy people, but it's actually the Jesus people who have power and love and a sound mind. Festus thinks that Paul's gone mad. In verse 24, we learn that he thinks Paul's great learning or literally his many books have made him crazy. I think this is a fascinating critique because Paul had been deeply studied as a Pharisee, and he was deeply immersed in the Old Testament. And here's what Festus is likely saying. You know your Bible a little too much. If, If you wouldn't have spent so much time in the Bible, then maybe you wouldn't have been so crazy. Now, what's interesting is you'll even hear this in church circles sometimes today about pastors when they really want to get deep into the application of the Word of God to the church of God, like, whoa, whoa, whoa the Bible doesn't, it's not that clear, it doesn't really have that implication. You spend a little bit too much time in the Word. That's what Festus is saying. You know, we, we all know the Old Testament, it's a great book, you know, gets good principles in there for life. No, no, Paul is like, this Bible reveals Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It reveals His death and His life and His Uh, substitution on the cross, and then his resurrection and the proclamation of the gospel, and Festus is like, whoa, you are nuts. Paul counters in verse 25, he still calls him most excellent Festus, right? Right after he's been called crazy, most excellent governor, with all due respect, I'm not out of my mind. In fact, I'm speaking true words. I'm speaking rational and reasonable words. And then in verse 26, I love what he does in verse 26. He's like, King Agrippa, I started talking to you. Festus has interrupted us, but I'm still talking to you. And the reason I'm talking to you is because you know I'm right. And he continues to personally address the king, speaking boldly or freely and arguing that Agrippa understands what Paul is talking about. If Paul is mad, Agrippa should have no idea what Paul is talking about, but Agrippa knows full well what he's talking about. Why? Because Christianity has not been hiding out in a corner, verse 26, like some subversive or secretive sect. Y'all, when, when Jesus was raised from the dead, God went public, and God's been going public for and with His Son ever since. And I love what Marita says here, Paul is a man with a mission. He's not pouting. He's not complaining. He's not trying to negotiate a deal in front of this king. He's preaching the gospel to him. And in verse 27, Paul puts Agrippa on the spot, doesn't he? There comes a time when we share the gospel where we got to put people on the spot. And he says, Do you believe the prophets? In other words, do you believe the Old Testament, Agrippa? And then he says, I know you believe. Paul goes from defending his case to prosecuting the case for Jesus. And here's what Paul's point is. If you believe what is promised in the Old Testament, then you have no intellectual reason not to submit to King Jesus and His authority. But here's the problem, church. Salvation isn't just about our minds. It's about our hearts. And King Agrippa knows full well in his brain that Paul is right. He can connect the dots in his brain, but that means he's going to have to submit his royal heart to the royal throne of the Lord God Almighty. Paul knows that Agrippa sees it. He knows that he sees the case for Christ, but Agrippa's going to have to repent and turn from darkness and the power of Satan to the light of Christ. Paul has had a very difficult two years and here he is still preaching the gospel to the king who could release him and begging him not to release him from prison but to release himself from the chains of darkness by submitting to King Jesus do you want people to know Jesus that bad that in the moment that you could get out of jail by buttering up somebody instead you bring the gospel to them and challenge them and confront them with it How bad do we want people to encounter Jesus? Do we want to encounter, we want people to encounter Jesus like Paul did? Do you understand? He's in chains and he could get free right here. And instead, he's like, You're rejecting Christ and you know it. What's wrong with you? Would to God that the church of God would be bold for Christ like this. And at this point, Agrippa expresses astonishment at how quickly. Or perhaps how easily, it's not clear in the Greek what Paul is saying, but how quickly or how easily Paul has made his case. And and Paul's reply in verse 29, I love verse 29. Agrippa, it's not about me. It's not about how easily I made the case or how quickly I made the case. I could go on for hours or I could make the arguments more difficult to follow, but I would to God. That's, That's the language of prayer. In front of every, I would to God that everyone who is within the sound of my voice would become like me, except for the chains that are on my wrists and feet. I would to God that the world would be saved and gloriously submitted to the agenda of King Jesus in all the world. Do you pray like that? You think like that? I submit to you, I I do sometimes, and other times I get trapped in the busyness of life. But this is where we need to live, church. I would to God that anyone within the sound of our voice, anyone seeing us at Kroger, anyone passing us on the road, I would to God that they would be like us, rescued by King Jesus. Tragically, it seems that Agrippa refused to turn to Jesus because if he had become like Paul I suspect he would have set his brother in Christ free instead Festus and Agrippa are willing to declare Paul innocent only after they have been conveniently relieved of their responsibility for his case now that they can escape the political problems that freeing him might cause Paul Paul will not go freely to Rome but he will go exactly as King Jesus told him he'll go as a prisoner And along the way, Paul has experienced much of what Jesus has experienced, right? On his way to the cross, Jesus was declared innocent how many times? Three times by Pilate. And then Herod came along and gave the nod that he agreed with Pilate's judgment. And now what has happened in Paul's life? He's been declared innocent three times by Roman authorities. And now another Herod, Herod Agrippa, has come along and agreed with that proclamation What does this mean for us? Why the parallels between Paul and Jesus? Here's what they mean. They mean that there's something about how closely we are to identify with our Savior. Our lives are to be lived like the life of Christ, taking up our cross, dying daily, following Him in the mission of making Him known, we too are to live innocent lives before the world as we declare that there is salvation in Christ alone, telling anyone who will listen of our lives before we met Jesus, of our lives because we've met met Jesus, and then urgently and clearly calling on them to respond to Jesus. Beloved, this is our mission. Let us go in Jesus' name. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we thank you for the example of Paul. We thank you for the boldness with which he shared the gospel. And God, we pray that your church would be characterized by such boldness. that, Though they may call us crazy, that we would stay on course proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we would leave the results to you and that you would see fit to bring revival to this land through your church as you save many. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if you haven't yet turned from darkness to the light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, it starts with a turn to Jesus. I pray God would open your eyes and that you trust Him today. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanup.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.